Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson, and thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. I would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Hector Lopez. He's the co-founder of Supplement Safety Solutions, the principal and partner at the Center for Applied Health Sciences, and CEO of Nova Nutra, just to name a few. Welcome, Dr. Lopez. I know I forgot a few things, but you've got a lot on your plate. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Danielle. Yeah, no, that's just fine. I would... The only thing I would add is just that um, uh, I also founded another company called Supplement Safety Solutions. So that, that sort of forms the third leg to the, uh, to the stool, I guess. So regulatory <laughs> compliance, clinical research on ingredients and supplements in the space, as well as new ingredient innovation and product development. So that, that kind of uh, hits, hits it from uh, three different angles. So you've got quite a background. You can talk about ingredients, regulatory compliance, science, all that stuff. So uh, let's get started with ingredients then. Okay. Uh, Taking a look at the sports nutrition category, why do you suppose we haven't come across any new ingredients lately? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I've heard that being a little bit of the perception for the last five years or so from many other stakeholders in the in the dietary supplement, uh, natural product space in general and in sports nutrition. I I think it's not only affecting sports nutrition, but I think other categories of dietary supplements in general. Uh, If I had to rank order the, the reasons for the sort of lack of innovation or slowdown in uh, bringing new ingredients or novel products market, I would say that it's probably going to have to start with the regulatory environment or landscape. Uh, I'd say that the environment uh, with respect to regulatory has had a little bit of a chilling effect on innovation. There was a lot less enforcement 10 to 15, even 20 years ago. Uh, with respect to uh, bringing new dietary ingredients, uh, for example, into the marketplace, which would, of course, if they're not registered as uh, notified as uh, new dietary ingredients and they don't meet a criteria as a new dietary ingredient or a substance that is grass-affirmed and is in the food supply and then can undergo a what's known as an, accept, an exemption to the a new dietary ingredient notification process. You know that that's, I think that's part of the limitation is that uh, at this point that would be considered a misbranded or adulterated uh, substance or ingredient. And so I think the, the the increase in enforcement in that specific aspect of the dietary supplement FDA regulatory law and enforcement of Deshay and and new dietary ingredient provision has probably had a chilling effect. A chilling effect, making it a lot more difficult. So there are a few bottlenecks, but at the end of the day, it's safer. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So there's a bit of a trade-off, right? I think in the past, the sports nutrition category has sort of been the, the platform where new ingredients, new bioactive compounds that might have clinical efficacy or might have some sort of biological activity would sort of be introduced uh, into the dietary supplement space in the U.S. especially. And so sports nutrition category tends to be the consumer. The sports nutrition consumer tends to be a little more sort of expecting or willing to try innovation or novel ingredients if it may potentially improve performance, recovery, or body composition. And, uh, and so I think, you know, that combined with the change in the social media marketing, the, the impact of influencers, also open label disclosure, which has been a huge trend 
uh, over the last uh, few years. And for good reason, I think there's a trade-off there as well. If you have open-label disclosure on your products, on your dietary supplement product, then the consumer at least knows the exact amount of every ingredient that is in the product. Every ingredient is disclosed individually. Proprietary blends provide an opportunity for innovation and for IP protection and, and patents on compositions if, in fact, a company finds something that's non-obvious that can enhance or improve uh, health and wellness and, and sports nutrition categories and uh, of interest like exercise performance or body composition or, or recovery. And so I, I think that there's sort of been a combination of factors that has led to that. Transparency is definitely key when it comes to these athletes because they don't want to get in trouble for doping. They need to know exactly what they're taking. Absolutely. No, Danielle, that, that's a great point. I would say the, the flip side to that, however, is that if all products have fully disclosed labels and a company finds that, for example, a certain ratio of an amino acid or uh, an ingredient like creatine with a certain other bioactive or a certain extract from a botanical, from an herb, if there's some sort of synergy there that a company discovers the fact that they are now sort of uh, relegated to doing full disclosure on the label means they can't protect that intellectual property. The intent behind a proprietary blend is truly to protect intellectual property and not just to mislead consumers. Then I, I think there's a conversation to be had there. Unfortunately, I think everyone's just jumped into this, oh, it's got to be full disclosure. And I think that has also had a chilling effect on, on innovation uh, because now companies are just sort of one-upping each other with respect to uh, just uh, increasing their doses of single ingredient that they're disclosing, not necessarily innovation. That's just kind of... Uh, you know, competing on a different level and just one-upping each other. It's a fascinating point that you make. I bet there's a lot of people who don't realize that when it comes to intellectual property and patenting and all that stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it, it's one of those things that kind of gets uh, swept under the rug because most people think, well, if you're hiding a blend, it's because it's an unscrupulous intent to uh, just fairy dust some ingredients. But that that's really not, not necessarily the case. I mean, there there could be there could be a, a, a well-regarded, good reason with good science to back it up why you would want to keep a formula proprietary. So, yeah, I think that discussion that we need to open up again uh, in the near future if we want to also increase innovation again in the dietary supplement base. Beyond the fact that that also disincentivizes a brand to do their own finished product clinical research if it's fully disclosed, now they're going to rely on borrowed research or third-party research from the raw material suppliers themselves. So I think that's been a, an, another trend that we've seen lately. Walk me through the process, the pipeline to commercialization. I know there's quite a few steps, but sort of in a nutshell, how would you describe it? Yeah, I think in a nutshell, I would start with discovery phase, right? So the, the first thing that needs to happen is there needs to be some sort of discovery of, let's say, a new ingredient or a new compound within an existing herb or an existing botanical product that has already been on the market. Take green tea, for example. Uh, if someone discovers that there is an overlooked polyphenol or an overlooked uh, alkaloid, within green tea that they've been able to find a unique extract and standardization for. Uh, and if that ingredient has never been on the market before, 
they need to go through a complex series of steps in order to allow that product to be commercialized. So um, if the first thing that happens is discovery of this, let's say, unique compound, unique ingredient, uh, now they end up going to do testing to validate whether there's actually biological activity, or at least there's evidence that there might be something unique about this compound or this alkaloid. What you would do is you would do some preclinical testing in order to look for whether that ingredient is moving the needle on some sort of measure. Uh, whether it's uh, enzymatic activity, whether it's gene expression activity, whether it's targeting a certain receptor. And you can do these studies what's called in vitro or preclinical. Another option would be to do the studies and translate it into animal model, which could be, you know, a mouse, rat, rabbit, uh, dog, uh, and other, other mammals, as well as other, other models, uh, certain worms or, or other uh, preclinical uh, models. Then you finally... Uh, when, you, when you feel you have something of interest and you found synergy and there's something non-obvious, then you might want to put the place your stake in the ground with respect sort of patent protection uh, unless the strategy, the business strategy is to keep it a trade secret. Then once you've decided on what path you're going to take there, now you have to do what's known as a sort of a regulatory feasibility study on that ingredient. If that compound or that ingredient has not been marketed prior to October of 1994, where it's no longer an old dietary ingredient, it's now a new dietary ingredient, uh, now the company has two, two options, essentially. They can either do all of the, the battery of safety studies and toxicology studies that need to be done in order to categorize that that ingredient or that substance or that article is safe. And they can go down the NDI route, or they can go down a grass route, or generally recognized as safe. If they go down the grass route, the threshold of safety is a little higher. The burden of safety is a little higher uh, because of the language in the in the regulation in the, in the in the law. State for an ingredient or a substance or an article to be deemed grass or generally recognized as safe in in the food supply, it, it needs to be essentially shown to be safe. Uh, this data, this information has to be, it has to meet a public knowledge element. It has to be in the public domain. It needs to be published. At least the core seminal uh, toxicology or safety work needs to be published. And then uh, you need to run it by a panel of subject matter experts who, who then uh, prepare and or read a, um, uh, a dossier. Uh, which it sort of summarizes all of the data, all of the safety data behind the ingredient or the article. Um, and then uh, you have to then introduce it into the food supply, and then it, it would be deemed grass. And at that point, you don't need to do what's known as an NDI notification. So you sort of have these two paths. Self-affirmed grass is a little more popular because it's kind of a broader umbrella. Your ingredient can now be used in both food and, and dietary supplements. But the standard that you need to reach is to have a reasonable degree of certainty that the uh, compound causes no injury or no harm. Whereas in NDI, you basically just have to make sure that the, there's a reasonable expectation that the, the substance is safe and is not going to cause a uh, burden of disease or, or injury. Then once the ingredient is either grass affirmed or is, uh, there's an NDI notification that has been submitted to the FDA and, uh, and accepted by the FDA, then you have to take the ingredient and decide, do I want to be able to make strong claims on this new ingredient, on this innovative ingredient? 
And if you do, then you have to run it through a gold standard human randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And you, you have to run that, that trial with a high caliber, a, a good, um, well-reputed rigorous research design. And then you can make claims when you bring that ingredient to market at that point. It could be uh, 12 months on the very, very minimum, all the way up to three to four years to be able to bring an ingredient from you know, cradle all the way to, you know, from origination or ideation all the way to the, to the marketplace. So when these dietary ingredients do enter the market and you're looking over research, someone with, with your background, what do you look for in quality research? Yeah, so uh, high caliber research, it needs to be able to meet the main elements of, of good research design. Usually start with the sample and the sample size. So it needs to be a large enough study for you to be able to, it needs to be powered well enough for you to be able to make a determination if the effects that you're serving and that the data suggests is there related to the ingredient are in fact reliable. And the, the subjects, uh, you want to make sure that the, uh, the subjects are a homogenous population, um, meaning that the groups that you're comparing, what are you comparing the ingredient to if you're doing a placebo control trial? Uh, and you have these two groups that are both going to be taking the ingredient, let's say a weight loss ingredient, for example. If they're taking a weight loss ingredient and the study is, let's say, 8 to 16 weeks, uh, and you, you have this um, subjects that you are screening and recruiting and then randomizing into two different groups, uh, you want to make sure that both of those groups are as close to each other as possible in terms of you know, sex and age and demographic and uh, body weight and uh, body composition and background diet and exercise and lifestyle. And if, and if possible, if you were able to take it a step further, even um, their genotype, that they have uh, a, a similar, um, if you can stratify them based on their, on their genotype as well. Uh, you don't have one group that has a certain uh, genetic predisposition versus another that could also impact your result. Beyond that, other important factors that I look for in good science, the controls that were in place, again, were they controlling background diet throughout the entire study? Were they controlling their exercise regimen or their uh, overall physical activity? The other things to, that, that are good to look for as well are the endpoints that are being used. Are they validated, um, well-researched uh, endpoints or outcome measures that have already been published in the literature? For example, when it comes to weight loss, you want you may be looking for things like body composition, not just standard scale weight or body weight, uh, but you can do body composition. You could use multiple methods to assess body composition reliably, like DEXA and uh, the BIA, uh, which uh, measures electrical current through your tissues uh, for hydration status. You want to look at you know bone through DEXA, especially. You can look at fat-free mass to fat mass ratios. Uh, and then even uh, displacement, uh, air displacement methods, for example, like BODPOD. Um, uh, these are some of the sort of gold standards that are used. And then you could use other things like measuring girth, like hip and waist girth. Uh, you can measure arm and, and leg girth as well. And then uh, there are molecular biochemical measures, which can be like uh, secondary things you look at or tertiary things you look at uh, to see if the ingredient of interest or the product for weight loss, if it's having an impact on their metabolic health, on their insulin sensitivity, hormones that might be of interest that could affect appetite or the way that the body manages or handles 
uh, calories or energy, partition it towards uh, lean tissue or muscle versus fat. These are some of the main things that I look for in a, in a high-quality study. And, of course, it, you know, you can look at other things as well, adverse events, safety measures, and um, uh, those are all important as well. That's a lot to consider when looking over research. Uh, before I let you go, though, I do want to ask you, have you come across uh, any case studies that you can share where the research was just overhyped and backfired. The first one, of course, that comes to mind, we've all heard of Hudia, but have you seen firsthand some case studies? Yeah, I think there, there's probably no shortage of ingredients that, um, uh, that, are, that, are, that come to market and make claims, <laughs> uh, you know, that they probably can't substantiate. Uh, this happens often, you know, there's a lot of puffery and advertising and marketing and um, you know, everyone's trying to yell a little louder, right, when they're marketing a weight loss product. And it, and it tends to lead to this um, making leaps and bounds over a, a, a gap that is just way too wide uh, that they just can't, you know, they, uh, you know, sort of writing checks they can't cash uh, from a research standpoint. So I would say a couple of those examples would be, you know, look, uh, some of the science was compelling and intriguing, but it was preclinical. And again, things that are seen in vitro or in animal don't always translate to humans. Things like raspberry ketones, for example, was a big one. And, you know, there's other celebrity-backed um, or uh, media sensations out there. Like green coffee bean extract was probably another one, which is rich in chlorogenic acid. And again, although there are some findings, even in human models and human clinical trials, um, that you could you could reliably say there might be an effect here. It's one thing to talk responsibly about the nuances of the effect, along with the limitations of the study that was conducted. Uh, and if it's only one study, that's another thing to keep in mind, Danielle, is that you really want to be able to ideally reproduce, a, a, even if there's one great study on an ingredient or on a product, you, you want to see that that can be reproduced in a, a different lab by different investigators, for example. That's when you start gaining a little more confidence in the data and in the fact that you can more reliably make recommendations. Yes, yeah, some of these ingredients, you know, they get a little bit of a small study in an in a, in a obscure journal, and then people end up, you know, sort of uh, going to town with those claims. And then they just disappear. Right, right, right. Yeah, as quickly as they pop on the scene, sometimes yeah, it's as quickly as they're off uh, out of the uh, off the market. Right. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of the NutriCast. Thank you so much to our guests. You can hear more from Dr. Lopez on January 29th on the weight management webinar. That's with Nutra Ingredients USA's Hank Schultz, along with two other industry experts. The panel will delve into the science behind those most popular ingredients. And one more plug, please join us at the Nutra Ingredients USA Sports Nutrition Summit in sunny San Diego. That's on February 3rd through the 5th. Online influencers, the microbiome, and formulation challenges are just a few of the topics we will be discussing. You can find out more at NutraIngredients-USA.com. Thank you so much for joining us for today's installation. I'm Danielle Masterson, and I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.